Good morning, family. My name is Christina, and I will do the Bible reading this morning. The reading is taken from Mark 14, verse 32 to 42. Mark chapter 14, 32 to 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of God. Thanks for your patience. Bit of a hoo-ha to get going here. Um, Thank you so much, Tina, for that reading and Clayton for that prayer. Uh, Thank you to our music team. You know, they've been playing pretty much to an empty auditorium for months on end. So we're so grateful to them. And this is not an empty auditorium. Can I have a hallelujah? Uh, It's wonderful. It is so wonderful to see this. We praise God for it. And uh, if if you are visiting with us, uh, if you if you knew, such a warm welcome to you. It's we love having visitors here at Christ Church. Uh, If you're an oldie, and it's your first time back in a while, we're so grateful for that. It's not the same without you. So it's really good to see you. Um, Just if you are new, it is our custom here week by week uh, to preach from the Bible. Uh, so that's what we're going to be doing. Um, you don't want to hear my opinions. Who cares? Uh, we, we try and preach from the Bible faithfully week by week. And so if you can have your Bible open, if you've got one with you, that would be great. Uh, feel free to open up your phone if it's, if it's on an app or if you can see someone close to you from your family who has a Bible. If not, don't worry. I will try and um, make it clear which part of the text we are focusing on. What are we doing here this morning? It's a fair question. Uh, By here, I mean seated here or on your couch at home. What are we doing here? Yes, it's Easter. It's Good Friday. But what are we doing on Good Friday? What are we celebrating? What are we remembering? Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. Easter Sunday is about his resurrection. Those events are happy enough. It's easy enough to see why we celebrate those events. 
But why would you celebrate or even remember Good Friday? The day an innocent Palestinian peasant was murdered by the Roman state. Even the name is a misnomer, Good Friday. Black Friday would be better, but take a lot got there first. (laughs) It's a little weird, isn't it, if we think about it? Why does Good Friday stand at the center of the Christian faith? Why is the cross the central symbol? We accessorize with the cross. Crucifix around your neck, earrings on your coffee mug, bumper sticker. I think we miss this. But going into the Mall of Africa with a crucifix around your neck is a bit like going into the Mall of Africa with a hangman's noose around your neck or little guillotine earrings or an electric chair pasted on your bumper driving around. The cross is a symbol of state-sponsored terror. It says, don't mess with us or you're going to end up like this guy. That's the Christian symbol. That's the cross. So let me ask again, what are we doing here? And what are you doing here? Let me make it personal. What are you doing here? Not the person next to you. What are you doing here? For many of us, uh, we are here to honor an incredible human being by remembering his death. Whichever way you look at it, Jesus is an inspiration to us all. He was a man of integrity. The world could use some of that. He was a warrior for justice. More of those, please. He was a loving, compassionate human being. All we need is love. So we've come to be inspired, to be lifted to a higher level of humanity, and to be reminded of our potential, of what's possible. Some came this morning for inspiration. Others would have come because it's the right thing to do. You know, if we want things from God, if we're constantly going to be asking things from Him in prayer, well, then it's only good and right and fair that we turn up on Easter and on Christmas. So some might come for inspiration, others for duty, others for more mundane reasons. You came because you were pressured until you caved, right? That friend, that family member, that colleague badgered you and badgered you and badgered you until finally said, okay, okay, I'll come. I'll come. Or you came for hot cross buns. (laughs) Now, we actually used to serve hot cross buns. What has COVID done to us? No more hot cross buns. But you can get them at home, and I'm sure you will. Because many of you, I know this, many of you know and you appreciate and you live by the fact that the road to hot cross bun glory is through the suffering of the church service. (laughs) Not so? It actually doesn't matter why we came. The point is we're all here now, and so we might as well make the most of the time and try and answer an important question. What is this cross that we have gathered to remember? Why the cross? I hope you will agree that the best person to ask is Jesus himself. And I hope to show you that one of the best places to see him give an answer is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's follow him and let's see what we can see. Here's how the story goes. I'm going to give you a bit of the backstory. 
Jesus has been celebrating the Passover with his disciples, with his close friends in Jerusalem. If you don't know what the Passover is, it's a very important Jewish festival, a very important part of the Holy Calendar, the, the Jewish Holy Calendar. It's a bit like Good Friday. At the Passover, they remember how God spared them from judgment and freed them from slavery in Egypt. So if you've seen that Steven Spielberg animated movie, The Prince of Egypt, that's pretty much what the Passover is about. Uh, On Passover night, God's angel brought death to every firstborn son in Egypt. But he passed over every Israelite household if they had taken the blood of a spotless lamb and put it on the the wooden lintels around uh, the door to their house. The lamb died in place of the firstborn. And after this final plague, so this was the tenth in a series of ten, after this final plague, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, finally let Israel go. But only for a moment. Because when he came to his senses, he realized he'd lost his labor force. His heart hardened. They pursued Israel. They had them cornered, their backs against the Red Sea, God parted the sea, Israel passed through the sea on dry ground, the seas closed, and the Egyptians were destroyed. That miraculous deliverance is what Jesus and his disciples were celebrating that Passover night. And they celebrated in the traditional way with the traditional meal. At the end of the meal, they sang traditional songs of praise. Now we need to pause here for a moment. I just want to point out two things. These are not side roads. Just to be clear, there's black new. Just noteworthy points. Jesus knew what was coming. We know that from reading the rest of Mark's gospel. He knew exactly what was coming. He knew the darkness that waited for him outside the warm light of that upper room. And yet he stopped to sing his father's praises. Now imagine yourself on death row. You've had your last meal. You're going to be singing hymns? Staggering in itself. He stopped to sing God's praises. Second thing we want to note. He sang from the Psalms. The Psalms were like Israel's greatest hits album. Jesus knew it backwards. And throughout this whole ordeal, whenever he is looking for words to express, to articulate what he's going through, he goes to the Psalms. He goes to song. So they sing these psalms of praise, and then they step out into the night, and they go east of the old city, and they go through a valley called the Kidron Valley to get to the Mount of Olives on the other side. It's, it's about a 20-minute walk, time enough for Jesus to reflect on the geography and the history of the place. This was the Kidron Valley. During the reign of Israel's kings, This is the place where they burnt the idols, the false gods. When David fled from his son Absalom, after he had committed murder and adultery and conspiracy and all manner of deceit, after he fled from his, when he was fleeing from his son Absalom, carrying all the weight of that sin and that shame, this is the route he took through the Kidron Valley, east of the city. Jesus was leading his disciples through the valley of guilt and judgment. When they got to the mount on the other side, they entered into a walled garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press 
oil press was there to, to crush olives, to extract the oil. It was an olive garden. And uh, it was a place that they often retreated to. It was a, it was a sanctuary for them, a safe place, a, a secure place, a place of rest and peace. They entered into the garden. Jesus leaves eight of his friends at the entrance. But he asks Peter, James, and John to enter deeper in. Deeper into the garden and deeper into his turmoil. He asks them to pray and to watch. Three times he goes deeper still to be alone with his father to pray. Three times he returns to plead with his friends for help. Help me. But to no avail. Verse 41. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And that's the story. Doesn't sound like there's much to it. But let's have a closer look. Let's stay close to Jesus as he passes through the garden. Let's see what we can learn. We start with his emotion. They enter into the garden. Remember, it was their sanctuary. It was their safe place, their place of security and safety. But in this moment, for Jesus, it was the exact opposite. It was a house of horrors. It was a, it was a torture chamber, a coliseum. All of a sudden, verse 33, Jesus is overtaken by great distress and trouble. Now, this is where the English language fails us miserably because those words just don't capture the depth and the intensity of what he's feeling. The word for greatly distressed has overtones of profound shock and fear. One language expert describes what he's feeling as a shuddering horror. The next word, troubled, is even stronger. Describes a kind of suffocating internal angst, a sickening anxiety. Jesus himself sums it all up, verse 34. There is a sadness in the depths of his soul that is close to death. Worth asking, what could produce such torment in the soul of the calmest, steadiest, most courageous, most even-keeled person who ever lived? Emotion so strong that it had physical side effects. In the Bible, we've got four eyewitness accounts of what happened in the garden. Uh, we've been reading through Mark's account. Another one of his um, close associates, Luke, writes this in his account. And being in agony, this is Jesus, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is no fairy tale. Jesus is no epic hero. This is an actual medical condition called hematidrosis. I've been practicing that all week. <laughs> Try saying it with five marshmallows in your mouth. Hematidrosis. It's thought to be caused by the body's fight or flight mechanism. But only under conditions of extreme distress or fear. So we can tell by Jesus' emotional state and by his physical state that he was going through major trauma in the garden. We can also tell it from his actions. Mark tells us, verse 35, that he fell to the ground in prayer. Matthew, another one of the writers, 
gives us a little more detail. It says Jesus fell on his face. Now, we need to remember he was a Jew. On your face is not the normal posture for prayer amongst Jews. Jews pray standing up. So falling on your face is the loss of all control and formality. It's messy. It's, it's what you would only do if you were utterly desperate, if you are crying out to God in desperation, and you've lost all control. Jesus' emotional state, his physical state, his posture in prayer, all of, us are, all of those things are telling us he was in deep trouble. Finally, we know that he was in deep trouble because of where he went for help. Three times, he goes back to his disciples, and he pleads with them to watch and pray. Again, Matthew's account is helpful because there we read that it wasn't just for their benefits. Jesus asked his disciples to watch with me. Watch with me. Those words on his lips are so poignant. Watch with me. He's asking them for help. He's pleading with them for help. These men who did nothing but fall asleep because they'd had too much wine to drink and because it had been a heck of a day. That's where he went for help. That's where he went for comfort. That's how desperate he was. The details of this picture that I'm painting, that's in the text for us, it all adds up to the same thing. Jesus was in a whole world of pain in that garden. But why? Why was he suffering so intensely? He actually tells us by the choice of his words. Remember Israel's greatest hits album and how Jesus would have it on repeat. He accessed it repeatedly to articulate what he didn't have the words for, to express what he was going through. It seems he always had a song for God in his heart and on his lips. When he says in verse 34, my soul is sorrowful even to death, he's quoting almost verbatim from Psalm 42, verse 5, verse 11. Let me just read you a few lines from that psalm so that we can get a flavor of the song that he's singing. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Psalm 42 is a psalm about righteous suffering under the oppression of an enemy and feeling the absence of God in it all. The writer is in mourning because of the oppression of an enemy. And in his mourning, there is no sign of God. Why have you forgotten me? When can I go and meet with God? My enemy is asking, where is your God? He thirsts and hungers for God. 
but he only has tears for food and drink. Why does Jesus bring this psalm into the garden? Who is oppressing him? This time it's the eyewitness record of John that's so helpful to us. Just before Jesus left the comfort of the upper room in the old city, this is what he said to his disciples. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Jesus identifies his oppressor, and his oppressor is the ruler of this world, the prince of this world, Satan. And we know from the rest of the Bible that Satan is powerful and personal. Satan is evil personified. He is the person behind all evil. I don't think I have to convince anyone that there's evil in this world. But some might find it difficult to think of evil as personal. You might say, bad things do happen, but it's pure chance. Just a few things to say on that. If it's pure chance, how can we say it's bad? If there's nothing but chance... Things are neither good nor bad, they just are. They could have been otherwise. But the labels good and bad, right and wrong, don't really fit if it's just random. If things happen by pure chance, there is no standard, right, if it's all natural selection, there is no standard by which to measure right or wrong. It just is. Atheist philosophers, not Christian philosophers, Atheist philosophers have recognized this for a long time. You can go and look at Nietzsche and Locke and Rousseau. If it's just random, if it's just chance, there is no right and wrong. Moral judgments don't count. It's all personal preference. That's what it comes down to. Taste and personal preference. But that doesn't make any sense to us. That just violates our common sense because we know some things are just plain wrong. And some things are not just wrong, they are evil. Is it enough to say that Hitler was a psychopath, that he wasn't well adjusted, that he was mentally unstable, that he had a condition, he was sick? It's not enough. Intuitively, we know we have to say more. He was evil, it wasn't random. He wasn't a victim of his childhood or his brain chemistry or Austrian society or the Treaty of Versailles. He was a responsible moral agent. What he did was deeply personal in the way all hatred, and we have experiences of this in our own history, all hatred is deeply personal. What he did was evil. Now that might not be enough to persuade you of a spiritual person behind all evil, But hopefully it helps you to see that the idea is not completely irrational. In any case, that's who Jesus identified as his oppressor. The evil person. The prince of evil. Satan. What was Satan doing? Anything he could to get Jesus to turn his back on God. Anything he could to divert him from the obedience that would eventually take him to the cross. 
Now, there's one account earlier on in Mark's gospel where Jesus' friend Peter uh, told him, because Jesus would talk about what was coming. And his friend Peter told him, took him aside and told him, you know, that, that death is not really fitting for a king. That's a slave death. You know how Jesus replied? He said, his words are so fitting. He said, and so, give us so much insight. He said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter was being used by Satan to distract Jesus, to divert him from the path of obedience, loving obedience to his God. So what was Satan doing in the garden? The very same thing. Satan would have been mocking and taunting and tempting and provoking Jesus, reminding him of how much pain he would face, how easy it would be to turn away. You are all alone in this. Who's going to help you now? These guys in the corner, you must be joking. You think they're going to do anything for you? They are going to run a mile at the first sign of trouble. They're not your friends. Do you really want all the shame and agony that is coming your way? Do you have any idea how much this is going to hurt? You know there's a much easier way. Satan would have been screaming and whispering all of that in stereo. And it was torture for Jesus. But there was more. He would have been constantly reminding Jesus of the absence of God. And this is the pain Jesus would feel more acutely than any other pain. This is the pain of Psalm 42. My soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you. When shall I come and appear before you? My tears have been my food night and day. Where is your God? My enemies cry out. The deepest agony of that night was the growing distance between Jesus and his father. You may not know this, but when he was baptized, God spoke words of love from heaven. And when he was transfigured on the mountain, God spoke words of love from heaven. But now, at his hour of greatest need, after agonizing in prayer, there was nothing but cold, hard silence. One Christian from another century said, it was as if the doors to heaven were bolted shut. It's why when he was hanging from the cross a little later on, he reached for another song from the same album with the same theme. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the agony Jesus is facing in the garden was the oppression of a powerful enemy and the absence of his father. His question is a good question for us. Why? Why was this enemy allowed to taunt him? Why was there any distance between him and his father? We know that he didn't want any of this. He tells us, Mark 14, verse 35, he prays for it all to pass from him. He wants none of it. It is not his will. It's not what he wanted. So why did he choose it? We have to say, first and foremost, he chose it out of loving obedience 
to his Father's will. What does he pray? Not my will, but your will be done. But why was this his Father's will? Why would the Father allow his Son to go through this? The short answer for you. That's a bold statement. So I need to back it up. Three reasons, three symbols of Jesus choosing hell for us. And make no mistake, the Garden of Gethsemane was a living hell. We've got three symbols. The cup, the garden, the festival. All of them tell us that Jesus chose hell for us. First, the cup. Mark 14, verse 35. Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So there it is in the prayer. Jesus calls his trial a cup. What is this cup? Once again, he reaches for the Psalms. Psalm 75, God says, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one, lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So we know from the rest of the psalm that God has a day on which he will judge all the inhabitants of the earth for their pride, for their rebellious pride, for their rebellious rejection of him. And that judgment is pictured as a cup that humanity, all of humanity will have to drink. And yet here in the garden, we have Jesus asking that the cup, that same cup, would pass from him. It seems he is the one who will drink the cup of God's judgment down to its dregs. But how? Because we know that he had a perfect, unbroken relationship with God. He calls him Abba. You know, it's something like in our culture when a younger man calls an older man who's not his grandfather in Tate. You know, that's a title of intimacy and affection. It's also a title of the greatest, deepest respect. We have no record of any other Jew ever calling God Abba. Jesus is the only one. And we know that God said of him, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So how could Jesus, who's in a perfect relationship of loving obedience with his Father, drink the cup of humanity's rebellion against God? The simple, mind-blowing, gut-wrenching answer is that he drank it for us. In Gethsemane, Jesus bore all our wrongdoing, from your smallest regret, that, that glance, that thought that passed through your head, that word that got away from you, from your smallest regret to the most heinous evil, apartheid, the gas chambers, the genocides. He took all our filth onto his own pristine conscience as if it were all his own. 
And it nearly killed him in the garden. It would kill him on the cross. It nearly killed him in the garden. It's as if he put his heart into that olive press and cranked until it burst and bled out on the floor. How do we know Jesus did all of this for us? First the cup, next the garden. When Jesus comes back the first time to find his friends asleep, what does he say to them? Verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Some of us know very little about the Bible. If that's you, well, you're in good company here this morning. But maybe you know this. Maybe you know this. Where else in the Bible do we find God's people in a garden being tempted by Satan? That's right. Please move to the front of the class. <laughs> right at the very beginning. The very beginning of the Bible. The very beginning of human history. Adam and Eve were in the garden of God's blessing. They were tempted by Satan to distrust and disobey God. And they caved. And from that moment, human, the human relationship with God has been irreparably damaged. It is broken it doesn't work, our relationship with God, because we broke it. This is the whole point of Gethsemane. We are back in the garden. Humanity is once again being tested in the garden. Where Adam failed, he failed for all humanity because he represented all humanity. Jesus enters into that same arena, carrying that same burden. He goes back into the garden. For all of us. How do we know Jesus suffered in the garden for all of us? For us. For you. The cup, the garden, finally the festival. Bear in mind Gethsemane was within the boundaries of wider Jerusalem. The whole city was celebrating Passover that week. In the upper room a few hours earlier, Jesus led the traditional Passover ceremony. But he breathed new life into it. He gave it new meaning. So in the traditional ceremony, the traditional meal involved eating unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is a symbol of, of a new beginning. God is doing something new, a new relationship with God. During the meal, the, 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 the participants would also drink four cups of wine. Four cups. I was talking to a Jewish friend just this past week. He was telling me it shouldn't be called Passover. It should be called Pass Out. <laughs> Because that's what it is. It's why we see the disciples sleep under the tree. We have some sympathy for them. But before the drinking of that second cup in the traditional meal, there's an explanation of the Passover events, of what it meant. Now Mark tells us what happened in the upper room at that Passover meal. Listen to what he says. Excuse me. As they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus gave his body 
and his blood for many, for others, for us. That means he bore the horrors of the garden, the oppression of an enemy, the separation from his father. He bore it all for us in our place. The question we asked at the beginning, why do we celebrate Crucifixion Friday? Why do we call it good? Why is the cross right at the middle of the Christian faith? In the Garden of Gethsemane, we get to look into the soul of Jesus for answers. We get to see his tormented thoughts and emotions in all their rawness. We get to see the cross through his eyes. For him, the cross was about loving obedience to his Father and loving us in sacrificial service. Jesus endures the fires of hell and separation from his Father so that you don't have to. He drank the cup of wrath so that you can drink the cup of covenant blessing. He was shut out by God the judge so that you can cry out to God the Father. It was his blood on the wood that saved you from death and won you the rights of the firstborn in the family. His prayer was ignored so that your prayer can be answered. Tell me, what right do we have to all these blessings and privileges? Let me ask it another way. Where are you in the story? As we look around the garden through Jesus' eyes, where are you and me? Let me tell you. We are the drunks asleep in the corner. That's what we contribute. And even less, because in a few moments, Jesus' friends would be running and hiding and denying that they ever knew him. That's their contribution. And these are the apostles. These are the founding fathers of the church. I'm pretty sure there's no one here who would claim to have a better religious pedigree than Peter, James, or John. And what do they contribute to being right with God? Nothing. Nothing but their sin and their sleepy, boozy indifference. Jesus lifts this incredible burden on his own. He is utterly alone in the garden. He is utterly alone on the cross. So that's the cross. What does it mean for you? And with this we close. Well, hopefully it's more than a hot cross bun. Because in Gethsemane, we're getting a window into hell. We're getting a window into what awaits anyone who rejects the gift that Jesus Christ is offering, the gift of himself. Maybe you came here this morning for someone else. Maybe you'll come on Sunday morning for yourself. If you came here to do your duty, to give something back to God, well, 
maybe you will realize that you've got nothing to give. That the only one who's got anything to give is the Lord Jesus. And we need to go to him for help. If you came here for inspiration, well, maybe you recognize Jesus is so much more than a man of integrity or justice or love. He is our savior. He's our rescuer. He is our suffering servant. He did for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. All of this is not new to you. If you've known for some time that you've got nothing to give to God, that you, you come only to receive what the Lord Jesus has won for you on your behalf, that it's all a gift. Maybe as you look into the Garden of Gethsemane and you see our Lord's heart breaking for us, maybe your heart will break for him anew, afresh this morning. And out of it will flow nothing but thanksgiving and reverence and awe and devotion to our suffering Savior. That's what we're doing here. Amen.